This is the Gospel City Church podcast. Our hope is that this message is helpful, encouraging, and even life-changing as you grow to know the person and work of Jesus. Enjoy this message today. Today's passage comes from Luke 20, verses 19 to 44. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know what you speak and teach rightly, and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man... If a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all, to, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Amen. Amen. Uh, In a way of review and kind of to show where we are right now in the text, we are in the middle of Passion Week. It is the final week of Jesus' life before he goes to the cross. And a couple weeks back, we looked at Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a colt and then afterwards going immediately to the temple to cleanse the temple from all its immorality and wickedness. And then after what he does in the temple, after what he's done, and and as he begins teaching the gospel, the religious leaders of Israel are furious. They're out to get him. Jesus called them out in the parable that we looked at two weeks ago with the parable of the tenants and the owners and the son, saying that whoever rejects Jesus will be crushed by the cornerstone. And so today we see these religious leaders, they're out to get Jesus. They're out for blood. And they want to get their hands on Jesus by entrapping him with some questions. 
And we'll see this back and forth between Jesus and these leaders. And it's like a battle. I, I kind of imagine, uh, for those of you who might enjoy hip-hop, one of those freestyle battles you see out in the streets, right? You have the two subjects, and you got the crowd all listening. And what the, these Pharisees, these scribes and Sadducees are doing is they're coming at Jesus with these questions. And we're going to see how Jesus handles himself. And so we're going to see three rounds of questioning. There's a question of politics, question of theology, and a question of identity. Politics, theology, and identity. And as we look through these different topics, we're going to see how Jesus handles himself with such wisdom and composure and authority as he's facing adversity before he goes to the cross. And through these questions, we'll get a better glimpse of who Jesus is and the blessings he came to give us. So let us look at the first challenge. Round one is a challenge of politics. The opponents are the scribes and Pharisees. They're a group of religious leaders at the time. And the scripture shows us that they wanted to lay hands on Jesus. No, they didn't want to lay hands and pray on him. They wanted to lay a different type of hands on him. They wanted to get rid of him with physical violence. They're angry. They're angry at Jesus for disrupting their economic system in the temple. They're angry at Jesus for that parable that he uh, spelled out for them, that their destruction is coming. But they're also cowards. As much as they want to destroy Jesus, they can't. They're scared because the crowds are very much still following Jesus. They're hanging on to his words and his teachings. So they're afraid of the crowd. And so rather than opposing what the crowd wants, they're trying to set Jesus up to bring him down. They bring in spies this time. They bring in spies to add, pretend to be sincere. And how devious is that? The first round of questioning, Jesus silenced them. And so they couldn't approach them anymore. So now they send spies to flatter him, to butter him up. And how do they flatter Jesus? They say, teacher. It's a title of respect. Teacher, we know that you speak rightly. We know you show no partiality. You truly teach the way of God. You got to appreciate the irony here. They're trying to flatter him. But what they're saying, in essence, is absolutely true of Jesus. He speaks rightly. There is no wrong speech in him. He shows no partiality. And he is the only way to God. He teaches that way. And so after they thought they flattered him and softened him up, they throw out the question. They ask him, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? And it's actually a pretty good question, because in their minds, whatever Jesus answers, there is no good outcome for Jesus. It's a lose-lose situation. They think they have Jesus trapped. What they're essentially asking, in other words, is, according to God's law, is it required for us as God's people to pay Roman taxes? And this was a very sensitive question for the people at the time. At the time, the Romans were ruling over Judea by force, and they were forcing their people to pay taxes to Rome and Caesar. And the people absolutely hated it. I imagine no one in here really enjoys paying taxes, right? Yeah, but we do it, right? We know that there is a good to it, and we just follow the law, and it contributes to society, and, every, and we enjoy the benefits of our taxes. But imagine paying taxes to a evil, foreign, conquering regime coming in to your home country, taking over and taking money out of your pocket. 
you would be furious. It'd be a different type of hate for paying your taxes. And that's just how Israel felt at this time. And so that being the case, if Jesus answered, yes, we ought to pay taxes to Caesar according to God's law, the people would be furious. These taxes represented oppression of God's covenant people. And so if you say, yes, we are supposed to pay taxes, the people would have turned against Jesus. And then the rulers could have done whatever they wanted to Jesus. He would no longer have that popularity in the crowd. The people would feel betrayed by Jesus. But if Jesus answered no, we ought not to pay taxes to Caesar, then Jesus would have been subject to arrest. Because at the time, refusal to pay taxes or speaking against Caesar and Rome was a criminal act that would have had Jesus arrested and possibly even punished with the penalty of death. Lose-lose situation. And I imagine the crowd is on their seats going, ooh, how is Jesus going to answer this one? How is he going to reply? And after they throw out the question, it's Jesus' turn. What does he do? He asks them to show them a denarius. It's the coin minted by the Romans at the time. It's equivalent of about one day's wage. And on this coin, now this is very important, was the image of Caesar and all sorts of inscriptions on it. The emperor in Rome at the time was Tiberius, and he was a son of Caesar Augustus, who was emperor when Jesus was born. But now the authority had been passed on to Tiberius. And on this coin was written, Tiberius Caesar, divine son divine son of Augustus. And on the other side of the coin, the, the, the words imprinted on it was Pontiff Maximus, which means the highest priest. You can imagine Jesus taking this coin, divine son, highest priest, titles that are reserved only for Jesus. Here, this pagan even nation, evil nation has this coin with these blasphemous words written upon it. You can imagine Jesus shaking his head. What he responds with is this coin. You see the image of Caesar on it. Yes, this is Caesar. So give it to Caesars. We are to lawfully be, be law-abiding citizens. So pay your taxes to Caesar. But he doesn't end there. He follows that statement with a greater statement. He says, but then give to God the things that are God's. You might be thinking, well, what exactly is Jesus talking about? For the Jews listening at the time, they knew exactly what Jesus was referring to. When they heard this, they're reminded of Genesis 1, 26, 27, where it tells us that God created us, male and female, you and me, in his image. So when Jesus is saying, give to God what is God's, he's saying, you, you who are created in God's image, give yourself to him. These spies were trying to trap Jesus with a question about taxes, but Jesus responds by telling them to give their lives to God. So from Jesus' teaching, we're able to learn one thing about the governing authorities in our lives. Yes, we do pay our taxes to Caesar. We follow the laws. Be a law-abiding citizen. Paul echoes this in Romans 13.1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Jesus' saying is, yes, pay your taxes to this oppressive, evil, violent, blasphemous, pagan Roman Empire. 
And for us, right, it doesn't matter what political situation it is we're in. It doesn't matter if you disagree with the policies. It doesn't matter if you dislike the party. We are called to live as law-abiding citizens. There is, of course, an exception in the Bible of civil disobedience. We see in Acts 5 where Paul is, has an act of civil disobedience because what the government was asking to do was in direct defiance of what God was asking to do. So yes, there's exceptions to not being a law-abiding citizen, but that is a whole different sermon for another day. The greater point in this passage is not necessarily the politics of it all, but Jesus' statement, give to God what is his. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give the authorities of this world what belongs to them. But ultimately, what's greater than your bosses, the government, or any authority in your life is God. So we give ourselves to God. He created you in his image. He's given you everything you have. He's given his son to die for you. Uh, commentary phrases it like this. The one who has given us all we have is the one whom we are to give our all. The one who has given us all that we have is the one to whom we give our all. So the question I want to ask you this afternoon is, are we giving ourselves to God? Are we giving all that we have to him? In our relationships, finances, career, all areas of your life, your time, your finances, are you saying, Lord, it is not I who is Lord and master, but it is you who is Lord and master of my life? I submit to your authority. I give you my all. Are you giving yourself to God? What are the areas that you might be holding back right now? You see, even though their question, these spies, their question was focused on politics, Israel's nationalism, the oppressive pagan uh, Roman Empire, but Jesus had a bigger agenda in mind. It's what he came into Jerusalem to do. He was focused on his mission despite these attacks from the religious leaders. He was focused on the cross that laid ahead of him in the days of head. His mission was to go to that cross so that we, who were made in the image of God, but had that image tainted and broken because of sin, his mission was to go to that cross so that we would be restored, so that our image in this life would be slowly restored eventually and one, eventually one day be fully. We give ourselves to him because he went upon that cross to pay the penalty for our sins. It was through his sacrifice that we were given this new life. It was through his sacrifice that we are now able to live a life for God, to have the heart to live for him. And we give ourselves to him because of that love and grace and mercy he showed us. We give ourselves to him because he's worthy. We are not our own, but we are now his. And so this is round one, and it goes to Jesus, hands down. There's no doubt he won. In verse 26, it says, And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. He silenced the crowd with his wisdom. Now we move on to round two. It's a challenge of theology, more specifically, about the resurrection. Now with the spies shut down, the Sadducees, Sadducees come in to take their shot at Jesus. And so who are these Sadducees? 
There were different groups of religious leaders at the time. And the Sadducees were the conservative aristocrats. They were the wealthy with power and influence. Most of the chief priests, the high priests, were Sadducees. And the Sanhedrin, which is the 70-member Supreme Court Council of Israel, were mostly made of Sadducees. They run the show in Israel. And they were upset when Jesus came in and cleansed the temple. And they believed that there was no resurrection. They, had, uh, they were against the resurrection, but at the same time, the Pharisees did believe in the resurrection. So there was this ongoing theological dispute between the Pharisees and the Sadducees about whether or not there was a resurrection. And although the Pharisees believed in a resurrection, they had a very flawed misunderstanding of the resurrection. They thought that the life we have right now would be mirrored in the afterlife. And so the Sadducees brought up this question, a riddle almost, if you will, that, made, that tried to make nonsense of the doctrine of resurrection based on New Testament law. There is a law in the, um, the Mosaic law called the Leveret marriage. And that, and that law declared that the, if you were married to someone and they, you passed away, so, sorry, if, <laughs> let, me, let me rephrase and clarify. Okay, this law, if you were the son, if you were a male and you married a woman, and you passed away without having a child. The law required that the next sibling, male sibling, would marry your widowed wife. That was, a, and that was the law. It seems kind of ridiculous to us right now, but there was purpose in the law at the time for Israel. God had implemented this law for the preservation and continuation of God's covenant people, to preserve land rights and families, individuals, and tribes. And so the Sadducees take this this institution of marriage and this levirate law of marriage and the doctrine of resurrection, and they try to slip Jesus up and make, um, yeah, just to make, you know, to try to catch him up and to discredit him. And the hypothetical situation is this. There are seven brothers. So this first brother marries a woman. He dies, doesn't have a kid. Law requires a second brother then to marry that widowed wife. The second brother then dies without a kid, and the third marries him, and then the fourth brother comes along, and I'm sure he's scared. That is a dangerous moment to be getting married to. But he marries her, and again, no kid. Fifth son, seventh son, and eventually the woman also dies. And so the question is, in the afterlife, in the resurrection, whose wife is she? The first son, second third, or seventh, right? And so the Pharisees, I mean the Sadducees, they think they have Jesus trapped. They think that Jesus would not be able to answer this question. The afterlife is perhaps an area that we have a lot of questions about, right? Whenever I talk with someone, there almost always comes out questions that I simply don't know how to answer because simply Scripture does not talk about it. There's questions like, you know, will we know each other in heaven? Uh, what will I look like? Will I get to have my 20-year-old body when I'm in peak, you know, physical shape? Or will I have the body of when I pass away? You know, what about infants and children? Will they mature or remain the same? I'm sure you have your own questions about the afterlife. But today's passage, we get to learn a little bit of the specifics of what's going to happen. And that is, for those who are married... And for those who hope to be married one day, Jesus is saying is in heaven, 
that blessing, that gift of institution of marriage will no longer exist. So the phrase that literally death do you part, that actually happens. Death will do you part. Your marriage will not continue in heaven. And so let's see how Jesus now responds to the Sadducees. First, he debunks their opinion that there is no afterlife. In verse 37, he says, But that the dead are raised. Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord of God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. He's showing that there is a life after this life. When, he spoke, when God spoke these words to Moses, guess who had been dead for a while? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But what God is not saying to Moses is that I was once God of these men. He's not saying I was God of these guys a long time ago. But he's saying even right now, after they had been dead for a while, I am the God of the living Abraham, living Isaac, and Jacob. He's not God of the dead, but God of the living. He's showing that there is an afterlife. And then he also explains that the afterlife is not what they expect. It will be fundamentally different. Verse 34 says, And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Marriage, family, children, these are blessings that have been given us by God. And though it is not always perfect, it is a blessing as we journey through this life. We find joy, security, strength in our families. To be known and loved by your spouse or by your parents brings us great comfort. But all of these are just a glimpse of the greater blessing Christ has come to give us, that full restoration in heaven. Blessings in this life is just a pointer of the blessings that are to come. When we die, we will be in eternal union with Christ in paradise. No more sickness, pain, death, or sorrow. But we will be made whole, and we will know uninterrupted joy, peace, and security in the presence of God. And it's so much greater than what we can actually comprehend and understand right now. And this passage shows us, it teaches us, that it would be much greater than the institution of marriage. It would no longer be needed. And these things, Christ will fulfill for us. There will be an overwhelming joy and satisfaction with God in eternity. Uh, there's a story of a student uh, who asked his professor, it was a Christian high school, he asked his professor whose wife had recently died, um, and he later eventually married the widow of his best friend. And the student asked him, will your wife know about your second marriage when you see her in heaven? And if so, how do you think she'll react? Uh, I know my earthly wife would not react very kindly to it, but what about in the afterlife? How would the wife react? And the professor smiled and said, of course she'll know. She will know. And because she will be perfect, she will not be jealous. Even though we will not live as marriage partners, I believe we will know each other. We will all be the best of friends forever. Imagine that. No more jealousy, no more anger, 
strife, betrayal, we will all be made so whole and so perfect and be so completely satisfied in being in the presence of God that even the blessing of family and marriage and children will just be a shadow of that greater joy of what we'll have in heaven. That is what awaits us in the afterlife. That is what awaits for those who have been called by God and put their faith in him. So these Sadducees threw out the seemingly unanswerable question about marriage and the resurrection, but Jesus again, again answers with such wisdom and leaves them in silence. Verse 39, that some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. It's like one pat on the back. You've spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any questions. These onslaught of questions and attacks on Jesus was handled with such aplomb, with such wisdom, authority, and confidence that they no longer dared to ask him any questions. It's hands up, we're done. We can't get this man. And so round two, again, clearly, Jesus is the winner. And we move on to round three, the challenge of identity. Identity. So round one, we have the spies from the Pharisees and the scribes trying to trick Jesus with a question on politics. Round two, we have the Sadducees trying to stump Jesus with theology of the resurrection. And now it's Jesus' turn. He takes the mic, and it's his turn to diss out a question to them. Let's read verses 41 to 44 again. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? This is admittedly very confusing. I needed to read it a couple of times to understand what was going on. Uh, the people at the time, they knew that Christ was their Messiah. They knew that the Messiah would come from the family of David. The scriptures taught this. And days before, as Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem, what were they shouting? They were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. They knew that the Christ would come from the family of David. But yet in Psalm 110, David speaks as the Messiah, as David's Lord. How can David have a son who is also his Lord? Right? In, that, in those times, it's been particular. You would never call someone Lord unless they're older than you or had social, higher social status. So why would David call someone in his lineage much farther down the line Lord? What we have in this psalm is a conversation between God and someone else. For us in, the, in English, the word Lord is repeated, and so it looks like there isn't much distinction of what's going on. But if you look at the Hebrew, it is a two different Lords that are being spoke, referred to here. You have the name of God, Yahweh, and then you have the title of God, Adonai, the sovereign one. And so this verse reads, the Lord Yahweh said to my Lord, and from David's perspective, Adonai, the title of God. What Jesus is showing them is his deity. He's showing that he is not just a physical descendant of the family of David, but that he also is the son of God, who has the title of God, Adonai. And that is where the, he leaves the group speechless. They have nothing left to say. He proves his deity with this scripture from Psalms, 
and it was a proverbial mic drop. They had nothing else to say to him. They're blown away. And as we look back and forth between Jesus and the religious leaders who are out to do whatever they can to entrap him, we see time and time again Jesus just handle the situation. He's composed. He has wisdom. He's in absolute control the entire time. There was evil out to destroy Jesus, but not for one second was he taken off guard. Nor did he fall into any of their traps. He wasn't a helpless victim of the circumstances or the situation going on around him. But he was in complete control, meaning that every minute up until that cross, he voluntarily and fully was obedient to God in giving himself up for us. The Lord, the sovereign one, the one in who all things were created and sustained, he gives up the glories of heaven. He comes down, he takes on flesh, and he becomes a servant to give his life for us so that we who were created in God's image would be restored unto him so that he would pour out the blessings of eternity, of being reconciled to the Father, enjoying him and being satisfied in being loved, with being loved by him. That is what Christ came to do. And we see in this passage that Christ, he is the one we look to. We put our trust in him as we seek to live out our lives for God, as we seek to give ourselves to him. Let's pray. If you've been blessed through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. Gospel City is a gospel-centered church in Seoul, South Korea, on a mission to plant Korean-speaking, healthy, gospel-centered churches. You can give by going to the website give.thegospelcity.org. Thank you for listening, and subscribe to enjoy more messages like this. Remember, Jesus changes everything.